In order to retire successfully, you'll need vision. You'll also need a plan to execute that vision. Welcome to Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky. On today's show, we'll give you the tools you need to navigate unique challenges you'll face in retirement. It's time to chart your financial future. Retirement Pathfinder starts now. Great to have you again on the Retirement Pathfinder. I'm Ben George. They are Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky over at Pathfinder Wealth Management. Today, we're going to dive into the mailbag and answer a bunch of questions from listeners today. But first, before we do that, let me get an update from Barbara and Phil, see how everything's going. So welcome in. How are you? Good. How's Hello. it going, Ben? We're doing well, Ben. It's going yeah. well for me. How's uh, how's farm life, Phil? I know you've been spending a lot of time during this pandemic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, our most exciting thing on the farm here recently has been watching the corn grow. And <laughs> and you can see that thing just kind of sprout up by the, by the minute. It's really incredible. But I uh, haven't had any uh, other bad experiences with you know, any type of chemical spills or That's exposure good. to <laughs> Roundup or anything right. like that. <laughs> so thank goodness for that. But no long-term effects there, Ben. But, uh, you know, we're we're feeling pretty good about what's going on out there on the farms. Uh, we're going to have bumper crops and beans and uh, corn. looks like the overseas markets are really starting to pick up as well. Yeah, that's all very, very good news, and that's encouraging to hear. I know we were going to get into the show here in a minute with Mailbag, but I know you have some thoughts on, you know, we're talking about there's just so much happening with with the country and debt and everything that's happening right now. There's just, you know, people are thinking near term and what's happening right now in the moment, you know, trying to get by day to day and what's the next move need to be. But you have some concerns long time, uh, long term, especially now considering college is about to start back again here pretty soon. People are in that mindset, right? Yeah, I want to touch on this. Uh, I pulled up an article by Brian Westbury, who is our favorite go-to economist at First Trust. And he wrote an article that he basically says he wants to hold colleges accountable. And so this is really important because, you know, let's steer away for a second from, you know, the COVID issues, you know, statutes coming down, the election debacles, whatever is coming on here as far as defunding the police and touch on a problem that we can solve ahead of time. And that's uh, the huge problem of students that have incurred debt. And we're talking about $1.5 trillion in student debt out there, Ben. And uh, the biggest difficulty with it is because of such a high unemployment rate among college graduates at this point, there's a possibility that we could see signs of massive default on the horizon. So now it's not going to be enough to really hurt us economically, we're not going to see an economic collapse because of it, but we want to talk about this. And, and uh, so Brian has really put together some very interesting points about how to stave off any of this particular type of problem in the future, which is going to you know, have to take in consideration some policymaker decisions. And they're going to be some tough choices. Uh, we're going to be doing some tough love here in our discussion just briefly, just before we get into the main topics of the moment. But Here's the thing, you know, how do we get here? $1.5 trillion. Well, there's two sides of this issue. The first side is that, you know, kids, they should have really realized and have known better than to go into the most expensive college. You know, they could have gone to a junior or a community college. We used to call them a junior college when I went there, Barb, you know, it's going to save a lot of money. They should have gone <laughs> to the lower price community college or have, you know, instead of taking underwater basket weaving as a, <laughs> as a major, they should have probably done something that was going to give them a more marketable skill, or maybe not even have gone to college at all. You know, True, a lot of people would be better suited to be in the trades. We and, need I mean, trades around here. Yeah. Who's going to come, you know, fix your sink, Barb? I mean, that's the thing, right? Yeah. So, 
it's on them, in other words. It should have really been. The other side of this is that, you know, we have convinced our children that they need to go to college to achieve the American dream. Is that really true anymore? So therefore, we should forgive them these loans and not have to chase after them. It's not the student's fault. You know, they were told they, they needed a college degree and, and go for it, kids. And they, we didn't really ride herd on exactly what they should take. So, you know, you, you decide which one of those is true. But, but here's the thing that we have to understand. The question is, who benefits the most from this money that is going to colleges? And Brian Westbury says, student loans have become a jobs and wage subsidy program to college professors and administrators. The government has provided them with the Job Security Act is basically what it boils down to. And so many of those profs, you know, are hostile toward the Western civilization, our culture, and especially the free market capitalization system that we work under today. And so if you think about it, gosh, they're really getting a free pass. Colleges are really benefiting at the expense of young people and and the loans that they're going to have to pay back at some point with very little to show in return. Now, this is not always true, but what Brian says is that there, there really is a gravy train, and it's a windfall for the intellectual class out there, those professors. Much of what they provide is useless and even harmful information with regard to free speech in our country today. And they're not being held accountable. They really have no skin in the game, no responsibility. So Brian's got a couple of suggestions as to how to stop this giveaway program. He says, first of all, Congress needs to create what's called a clawback system to colleges. You know, uh, what this is, is basically if, if a person owns a home and they default on the home, of course, uh, they have to give the home back. And in many cases, you know, they, they have to suffer through a bankruptcy or whatever. But the bank goes back to the collateral. Well, colleges don't really have collateral. What's a degree worth? You know, you can't claw back a degree. But so what Brian suggests is that the college will pick up 50% of the defaulted loan and go after the students <laughs> to pay back this money. And that's really interesting. So that way the colleges actually have skin in the game. They're not go. getting a free ride. Mm -hmm. See, right now they don't have any responsibility for those loans. They have no liability whatsoever. The second thing he says is that colleges have abused their charitable status and engaged in political activity. No kidding. You know, if you think about it, where are most of these kids coming from that are in the protest movement today? Yep. You know, well, if that's the case, you know, colleges are not really, well, what we say, uh, they basically have an interest in what's going on in the, polit in, the, in the political world over there, you know? And so they're, they're just responsible for some of these attitudes yeah. that they're creating. So Brian's position on this is we end the tax-exempt status for the colleges. And the third thing he says is that wealthy colleges have massive endowments, and they should be taxed for the hedge fund they really are. Now, let me give you an example. Harvard has $37 billion in endowment. Yale, $27 billion. University of Texas system, $26 billion. Stanford, $25 billion. Princeton, $23 billion. Northwestern, $11 billion. It's incredible how much money these colleges have. And so yet, they are not responsible for any of these loans that they're helping to incur. It's basically a gravy train for them. So, we have to make some tough choices, but we can go ahead and head off this particular debacle that's on the horizon. It's time for policymakers to take a different route to higher education and how it's funded today.
Very good. That is, yeah, that's that is amazing. Billions of dollars, billions. Yeah, it's billions. incomprehensible. Thirty-seven billions. billion, twenty-seven billion. You know what makes us think that what these kids are, our kids or our kids are learning in schools would always stay there. So here we are, to, you know, protesters today, defunding police, we're tearing down statues. But what's interesting is I just heard that Harvard is not decreasing their tuition this fall. And there's people that aren't happy about that because these kids are going to be learning off-site. Oh, there you go. Yep. Yeah. That was good, Phil. Yep. Yeah, I, I was about to say the same thing, Barb. There's, there's going to be a very interesting uh, fallout probably this fall as, you know, these schools aren't able to provide the same value that they have been in charge, been charging for, but they don't want to decrease their tuition costs, you know. So there's got to mm-hmm. be some give or take there because there's not many students who are going to pay that kind of money to take virtual classes when they could do yeah. that basically anywhere. So that's true too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Be very curious to see kind of how this all changes higher education too over the next few years and beyond. So great point, yeah, Phil. I'm glad true. you brought that to the show today. So let's dive into the mailbag, get a few questions answered from listeners of the retirement pathfinder podcast. And we'll begin with Mick who writes in and says with so much market uncertainty recently, is this a good time to buy bonds? Okay. Well, listen, Mick, right now, a 30-year bond is paying about a little bit more than 1%. Recently, when the uh, Fed decreased rates, they usually decrease rates by maybe a quarter percent. The last time they decreased rates recently, well, they dropped them by 1.5%. So a uh, 30-year bond, again, is, is paying a little bit more than 1%, but short-term bonds are considerably less than that. I just talked to someone who bought a CD paying a half a percent. So how exciting is that? Wow. Historically, bonds have been a good alternative to stocks during times of trouble. If we look at treasury bonds, which are backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, well, they're they're 100% safe. So that said, our belief is to own bonds in a diversified portfolio of stocks included and not long-term bonds. So the right asset allocation is where you want to be. The returns on bonds lately have almost entirely come from falling yields that will then increase the price of the bonds, and then they can sell those at a premium. Generally, that's not the case, and the interest that bonds themselves pay is a more important component of the overall bond returns. So you'd be making a big mistake to go out and just buy bonds. Choose a well-diversified mix of stocks and bonds, short-term high-quality bonds, and that's the best place to be. You then have a cushion no matter what the market does. Yeah, interest rates basically are at all-time lows, all-time mm-hmm. lows. And so where are they going to go? Well, there's no place to go but up from here. Now, they could go negative, I suppose, but not very long. We haven't experienced that environment. But when interest rates go up, bond values go down. Go down. It's inversely correlated. So one mm-hmm. of the things that we have to warn our clients about is don't think about buying, especially long-term bonds, because if you have to get out at any one time with that particular long-term bond, you could be selling at a discount mm-hmm. because of the way interest rates will, will react in the future. So thank you for that question, Mick. We appreciate that. Again, you can always send them in to pathfinderwealth.com. That's what Julius did. And he wrote in next and said, I recently had a REIT proposed to me as an investment I should consider. What are your thoughts on these? And I guess begin with explaining what an REIT is. REITs, yes. Well, it's unfortunate Julius is not sitting here with us in the room, Ben, because if he were, I would ask him what he thinks about REITs, what he knows about REITs, why he should consider buying them. You know, we find that people that buy REITs, uh, by and large, have, don't know very much about them. They know they're in real estate of some kind, but they really have not been schooled on the idea of what a REIT does. And so 
my advice to any potential investor is don't put your money into an investment unless you understand both the pros and cons of the investment. And we do have some with REITs. We'll talk about that in a second. Well, that being said, Julius is not here. So let's see if we can kind of steer him in the proper direction. First of all, what is a REIT? What does it stand for? The term REIT stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. And what it is, it's a, um, an offering by a firm that specializes in buying and managing properties, mortgages, or rents. They're similar to a mutual fund from the standpoint that many investors pull their resources together and buy into an investment that's professionally managed. In this case, it's, it's real estate managed or real estate is the asset in the portfolio or some form of the real estate, which could include rents and, and interest as well. Uh, the advantages to the investor is that you don't have to personally manage the property. You don't have to be a landlord. And for a lot of people, that's a big advantage. Some people are not cut out for the job of being a landlord because they don't want to be called at three o'clock in the morning by the police that, you know, there's something going on in the property or, or the toilet has uh, exploded because, you know, the kid has put down their, uh, their dollies down the toilet and flushed it or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, we've all had those kind of experiences in our household. And so, yes. And so you have the potential for steady cash flow generated by rents, mortgages, or interest. You know, currently there's over $3 trillion invested in REITs in the United States. And there are three kinds of REITs. There's number one, the publicly traded REIT. And that's the REIT that is registered and listed on the exchange that can be bought and sold daily on the stock exchange. They're very liquid and usually accurately priced. So when you buy, let's say, a REIT at 45 bucks, it's usually what the, what the value of the REIT happens to be. And so it, it's actually the actual price of its going price at that point. So if that it's, it's, it's value. The second one is the non-publicly traded REIT. And that's where the REIT is registered with the SEC in order to be offered to the public, but not traded on the national exchanges. And so they're offered through brokers, through investment houses, and they're less liquid than usually the, uh, the publicly traded REITs. And those are the ones that give us the biggest difficulty. And I'll go in that, into that shortly. The third one is the private REITs, and those are the non-registered and privately traded uh, real estate investment trusts. Usually, they're put together for large institutional firms that are managed by big pension plans or endowment plans. We don't usually see them. And so, those are the three types of REITs. And just to kind of describe what the uh, downside are would be about REITs, and uh, we've talked about the pros. Now, here's some of the cons. Number one, you can and do lose money in a REIT there is a possibility of, of losing money in a REIT. Uh, it depends on uh, what type of REIT it is, where it's invested. You can have commercial, you can have residential, you can be in a bad environment from an interest standpoint. There's all kinds of reasons why you could lose money in a REIT, but you do lose money from time to time in REITs. Number two, they can be very illiquid. Often the management company has the ability to reduce or even postpone dividends or even the return of principal. You know, we've had clients, Barb and I have had clients where we've inherited them from other firms where the client was sold REITs by the other firm, but had to wait years before they could get either part or all their money back. So this is especially true with the non-publicly traded REITs. So we have to be aware of that. If any early offer to buy those shares from the investor occurs, many times it's at a huge loss or discount mm -hmm. to the client. So be aware of that. Number three, there's a possibility of return of principal that's disguised as a return. So let's say we have uh, an 8% promised return. Well, maybe 4% uh, could be interest or, 
or profit. The other 4% could be a return of principal. So that could be uh, kind of misleading. So if the client under- doesn't understand what the total return aspect of that investment is, they could end up being very disappointed. And then fourth, there has been an opportunity in the past to misstate the REIT's true value. And this, has been, this was a big problem about five to 10 years ago when the SEC sued major REIT companies because what the REIT company was doing was they were publishing the value of the REIT based on what we call book value, not market value. So if you thought that your shares were worth, uh, let's say, $50 a share, and you went, oh, that sounds pretty good, and you went to sell it in the market and you only got $25 or $30 a share, well, that was a huge disappointment as well. So the REITs at that time weren't required to state their market value in their prospectuses. They stated their book value, which could be substantially less. Well, today the industry is, is better regulated and you don't see that type of thing going on. So, But our advice, again, is that REITs would be an example of what we call an undiversified risk. It's one asset class. It's one group and you're not appropriately diversified. You know, it's funny you mentioned the 8% return because when I've had people come in with a REIT, they talk about 8% return and a 7% return. But if they're not making the money in the rents, then the rest of that's coming from your principal. Yes. And you don't know that to give you that income. But if you own real estate, if you own it, that could be a good diversifier if you want to be a landlord. <laughs> what I don't like about REITs is their lack of liquidity. You know, I have a client that's been trying to sell his for at least five years, and right now it's down to about half the value. And I have another client that had three REITs, took a big hit on selling one, and he can only sell these things at certain times. It's maybe every couple of years, and she still has two that she can't sell. So private REITs, like you were saying, Phil, are worse than publicly traded. At least with publicly traded, you can sell those in the marketplace, and it might not be what you want for those, but you can at least get rid of those. So know what you're getting into and why, and how can you get out when you want to? Yeah, it's not to say that all REITs are bad either. You know, yeah. We, we don't want to say that because, I, you know, we do have, uh, I do invest in real estate personally. And, uh, you know, in some cases you, you make money, in other cases you don't, but you have to have the right, right temperament to understand how real estate works. So that's why we say, buyer beware, understand what you're getting into. I'd say just own a well-diversified portfolio mix that would suit you better. Mm-hmm. Then you own the entire market and you're best prepared during times like this. But I would also give another word of caution to Julius because I think there will be a lot of empty real estate due to businesses closing. You've got more people finding out that they can work at home. Mark Zuckerberg has said that out of his uh, 45,000 employees, he expects about half of those to be working at home over the next 10 years. Wow. We've got malls closing around here. We've got malls closing everywhere. So yeah. do your homework. A REIT may or may not be what you really want. Hmm. Yeah, some great information there, Julius. Thanks for that question. Next one comes in from Rourke, who writes in and says, my financial advisor seems to do a good job of managing my investments, as far as I can tell, but we never talk about other things like social security or life insurance or legacy plans, which are all things I feel that I should be getting advice on. Is this typical? That's a very good question, Rourke, and you cannot believe how many times we're asked that. So limited advice is so common. We teach a class called Taxes and Retirement, and almost every single person we meet says the same thing. It is typical to not get anything but investment advice from your advisor, but it doesn't have to be. So at our firm, Pathfinder, we decided long ago to be holistic in our planning. So a client's estate plan is equally as important as their investment plan, because if you can make them a good return on their investment during their retirement years, what good would it do if they can lose half of their estate to probate costs upon death? 
So we focus on all areas of retirement, including investment planning, estate planning, tax saving opportunities, retirement income plans, including when to take Social Security, and protection of your estate from catastrophic illness. There are a couple areas that we have strategic partners with because one of those is healthcare. Need I say more about the complexity of that alone? Well, when we looked at the areas that we provide for our clients and we periodically review what we can add or do better, and then we come up with this area several years ago of tax savings. That's about three years ago. And when we teach a one-hour course on taxes and retirement, we've got a full room. Everyone wants to know how to save money on taxes, which, by the way, our next classes are, we have two coming up at the end of August. So give our office a call at 815-399-9806, and we will let you know when those are. We'd love to have you come. But as far as for Social Security, we see people that are not aware of claiming options. that If they don't take them, they're going to miss out on them. This has to do with married couples. There's a lot to Social Security. So, Rourke, give us a call. You can work with an advisor that will encompass all areas of financial planning, especially retirement planning. Let us know what you're looking for, and either Phil or I would be glad to have you and uh, to have a discussion with you about your needs. Yeah, Barb. In the old days, uh, you know, our parents' years it used to be they'd have a stockbroker, a banker, and a tax preparation person. You know, and they never talked to each other, obviously. Yep. But today, because everything is so interconnected, you know, taxes will be depending on what type of investments you have, could be higher or lower. The amount of distributions you have to make out of your retirement plans can be modified. And so now we're talking taxes, you know, when we're actually managing the portfolio. So it all, it's what we call the holistic approach. In other words, mm-hmm. we need to put it under one umbrella and we need to be speaking all these different languages, so to speak, to make sure that the client comes up with the right combination of outcomes they're looking for. Yeah, because most firms do nothing but investment advice. That's it. They're, That's they're investment it. firms and they give investment advice. But once you have a portfolio mix, then what's the need for, what's the advice from that point on? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess would be my question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully you can find somebody that can help you with that, Rourke. And as Barbara said, feel free to call them if you want to get a second opinion or just kind of get to know them a little bit more. 815-399-9806 is the number. All right, we've got time for one more question. So we'll take it from Cheryl. She writes, my husband wants to pay off either our house or our rental property just so that we'll have something paid off. We have enough money in our money market account to pay off one of them, but I prefer seeing a lot of money in that account just in case we need it for something. So who's right? Wow. Thanks for your question, Cheryl. I, maybe I'll pass this off to Barb. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you said you said uh, we weren't giving uh, marriage advice. Well, yeah. I said, you know, we uh, <laughs> yeah, let, let's start out with my response this way. At Pathfinder, as Barb says, we work in many areas, asset and portfolio management, uh, retirement income planning, insurance and estate planning, tax planning, but we have not yet gotten into marriage counseling <laughs> yet. Okay. Yeah. I, it's probably coming, you know. <laughs> So that being said, let me step off onto uh, onto the ice and hope I don't fall through and and maybe give. I think Cheryl, we should say Cheryl is isn't the wife always right? Yes, uh, I think so. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> let me look at it from strictly a numeric standpoint, okay, and let let them decide. So I need to ask the question that is seldom asked, and that's this is the first question: Where in the world did we get the notion that we have to always pay off the mortgage or pay off? you know, the, the real estate. That's what our parents did. Well, that's exactly mm-hmm. right. It was taught to us by our parents, the World War II generation, and it's what I call an inherited bias that's probably not well supported today. And, and the reason I say it is because during the, uh, in the stock market crash in 1929 and time thereafter, 
banks actually came in and foreclosed on people that were paying their mortgages because you know banks were, were gambling in the stock market and they put a lot of their money on margin. And so when they came in to collect that margin, the banks had to liquidate all their holdings to include all the real estate. And so people were damaged during the Great Depression. They lost their homes. They lost their businesses. Lost and confidence. So, and lost confidence. And they were, that particular fear has carried on to their children, the World War II generation, and then again to us. So we must pay off the house. We must pay off the real estate. And my question is, why? Does it make sense to do that? In some cases, it does. If I woke up in the middle of the night and my wife says, honey, pay off all the real estate, I better do it, right? <laughs> I don't need to explain why it makes sense to hold it. Let's do it. But if you think it's the right thing to do, you should. But apart from that personal preference, let's view this strictly from a financial point of view. I don't know what kind of dollars that Cheryl, you and your husband are working with here. So I'm going to invent some examples and give you some ideas. So let's say we have a client that's got $700,000 in their IRA account and they have a home mortgage that has a balance of $100,000 and it'll be paid off in four and a half years at a three and a half percent interest rate. That's what they're being charged. Should they pay it off? Well, I wouldn't. No. Okay. Why not? Well, because you paid all the interest and upfront charges already, and now it's primarily principal that you're paying back. And anytime that you take money from an actively managed money-making account to a house or to a real estate property, okay, you're primarily putting your money into a non-income producing asset, okay? Think of it this way, that your IRA to you is a money machine. It's going to produce wealth in the future for it. So you're taking your wealth creator and you put it in something that's a wealth consumer. You're putting it into a dormant state of holding at that point. You know, in most part, now some houses that go up in value, but you got to live someplace, right? So you're going to stick that profit into something else as time goes on. Well, you don't want to keep your money locked up, your equity locked up in a non-income producing asset. So our particular view on this is uh, by transferring you know, that, that money from your IRA to your home, in a sense, you're killing off your money machine. We don't want to do that. Well, what about the rental income situation? Talked about possibly paying off rental. Same thing. The idea of making money in real estate investing is use someone else's money, maybe the banks, okay? And what you do is you use their money to leverage their funds to increase your wealth. How is that done? Well, as an example, because we don't have any, any of Cheryl's numbers here, let's, let's invent some. Let's say that you put $10,000 of your own money into a rental property and borrow the rest. So after your uh, expenses, such as mortgage, taxes, upkeep, okay, you have what's called a net return. Let's say you're making $8,000 per year on that property after your, all of your expenses. Well, Barb, what is $8,000 of a $10,000 investment? What kind of return is that? It's an 80% return. Yeah, 80%. Did you get that 80% <laughs> every year? Pretty cool, right? Yeah. That's all right. So that's a substantial prop. That's how you leverage money. But the more money of your own that you put into the mortgage or you pay off the mortgage, okay, the, the percentage of return goes down. And I think your, your aim in real estate is to make more money, more return on profit. So that's the thing we want to do is we want to take a look at this. And I'm not going to be able to give Cheryl and her husband very good advice unless they come in. I examine their situation you know, their complete workup of their finances, their cash flows, their costs, and find out where they are profit-wise. 
I agree with you too on the renters. Let the renters pay the mortgage, but you and I have always been on the same page on this subject, Phil. And for most people, large sums of money aren't something you come across very often in life. So if your interest rate is lower than the return on your investment, then use the bank's money and let yours grow. Absolutely. Now, mm -hmm. if you can't sleep, then pay one off. Absolutely. That's my story. <laughs> yeah, Cheryl, if you have, uh, if you want to actually dive into it a little bit deeper, I encourage you to get with uh, Barbara and Phil and let them actually go through everything with you and really drill down the numbers and see what makes the most sense for you. But hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, of where their head's at. So we thank everybody for their question on the show today. We appreciate it. If you ever want to send in something to us, we would really encourage you to do so. And you can find us online at pathfinderwealth.com. Contact us there, or you can contact Pathfinder Wealth Management at 815 399-9806. So covered a lot today on the show, but hopefully some very good information along the way for people listening. So Barbara, Phil, I appreciate the time today. Both of you, I hope you take care and uh, stay safe and healthy during all this. Yes. Thank Thanks, you, listeners. Ben, you too. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.